Okay, welcome to this lesson of History of Aromatherapy. I thought what I'd do is on some of the lessons I'll record a podcast and then it'll give you a chance to hear my voice and you can sort of follow it through with the, the on-screen notes if you want and watch the little videos that go with it at the time. Or you can just listen to the podcast. There's probably enough information for you to learn from and to decide to go off and sort uh, a bit more research out and uh, have a look at what interests you. So what we'll do is we'll take a journey through time and plot the journey of aromatherapy from its very first beginnings to the present day. And then after that, you will start your journey of aromatherapy. So... Our story begins before the birth of Christ in ancient Egypt, where aromatherapy was without question linked to the development of aromatic medicine. The Egyptians used all sorts of aromatic potions for um, religious purposes, for prayer, for mysticism, as perfumes, as unguents, as healing, um, and as cosmetics as well. So they honoured their gods by burning sweet-smelling woods, herbs, spices and resins. And these were combined sometimes. Certain things were burnt on certain days and at certain times of the day, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So in Egypt, perfumery was linked to religion as well. And each sort of deity had its own special fragrance. And statues will be covered with scented oils. They will be anointed in oil uh, to give thanks to the gods. The Egyptians had a considerable knowledge about embalming, which is where mummification comes from. And by their knowledge, it's enabled us to see in the present day what life in ancient Egypt many, many thousands of years ago was like. And through the mummies, they've been able to piece together a guide to sort of daily life and how things happened. So... What I've done is I've put a little link to a video in the notes so you can press that and watch on YouTube. It's quite a nice little video about mummification and goes through the whole process of being the body taken to, be the, to the priest and the internal organs removed and these were put in little jars and then the body being embalmed and prepared to, to go in its uh, sarcophagus. So herbs, potions, resins, spices... Um, were transported across the desert to Egypt by Arab merchants and by this very fact it made them very expensive. So only the very rich could afford some of the more um, expensive uh, resins and woods and very often they would command a price higher than gold and jewels and um, and, you know, this is the reason why it became a very uh, upper class thing, the sort of perfume. Between the 18th and the 20, 25th dynasty, the Egyptians refined the use of aroma aromatics and they created incense and perfume and cosmetics. And Gabriel Moje, in his book uh, Aromatherapy for Healing the Spirit, um, writes that the Egyptians. Um, charred frankincense gum to produce a black powder called coal which is used by Egyptian women to paint their eyelids and coal is still used today I'm not sure if it's manufactured by the same process but that's where the process began and so one of the best known perfumes of this era is kaifi 
which was used by the priest. It was burned at sunset um, to bring about sweet dreams and to lull you to sleep and allay anxieties. And another thing it's described as brightening the dreams. Now, there's many, many different ingredients for kaifi. And that some of them include honey, myrrh, cinnamon, turpentine, juniper, cardamom, wine, raisins. And I've had a search about and I've found a recipe for kaifi and I've managed to get all the ingredients. So at some point there will be a little video added of me making kaifi and I'll let you know what it smells like as well. So it's quite a long process because you have to sort of grind everything down and then make it into balls and wait for it to dry before you can burn it but I will have a go and there will be a little video and perhaps the recipe as well so that's something to keep checking back for so we're going to move from the Egyptian times now and we're going to move to China and to the Qin Dynasty um, this is around uh, 2000 BC when the Yellow Emperor Wang Tai uh, included herbal medicine in his book uh, on disease called the Yellow Emperor's Classic of Internal Medicine. He used such remedies as ginger and opium which apart from their therapeutic applications were also known to be used for religious purposes. You can still purchase the book, um, The Yellow Emperor's Classic of Internal Medicine today, uh, or a translated copy, which uh, is available on Amazon. And it's worth worth a read. Uh, it's, one, uh, it's a very classic book, and it's still used as part of study for things like um, acupuncture uh, students. So. so we'll journey a little further, and we'll go to India now. So, And we'll talk about Ayurveda which to many Indian people is still a way of life today. It's the way they live their life, the, the balance of how they create um, with food and lifestyle and herbs and things. So the Rishis, who were the holy men, developed Ayurvedic medicine by writing the books, the Vedas. Again, they're still available today. There's many, many different versions if you have a look, um, sort of in bookshops and on book sites. Um, they made huge advances in medicinal knowledge and anatomy and physiology of the human body through the books of the Vedas. And they looked at um, physical, spiritual and mental bodies and bringing it all into balance to create good health. So the word uh, Ayurveda comes from the Sanskrit. Um, Aya meaning life and Veda meaning science or knowledge. So it was the science and knowledge of life. In the Vedas, there are listed over 700 substances, which include cinnamon, ginger, myrrh, coriander and sandalwood. They had a great and very deep understanding of plant law, which they developed into this system of medicine. And as I say, it's still very apparent today. You get a lot of Ayurvedic medicine, Ayurvedic treatments and Ayurvedic clinics. So that's another one to have a little research into and have a look at because it did bring a big influence onto aromatic medicine. So we're going to slowly progress now and we're going to go through time and we're going to change continent. So we're here for a while so you can kick off your shoes, settle down and we'll talk about the ancient Greeks. 
So as the Egyptian Empire crumbled, uh, Europe took on the role of evolving new methods of healing, uh, which came from a more scientific view of the body. The Greeks had learnt a great deal from the Egyptians and um, Herodotus and Democrates visited Europe during the, during the 5th century BC and they transferred what they'd learnt uh, into perfumery, perfumery and natural therapeutics. They also visited the cradle of medicine in Europe and learnt perfumery um, and they set up the first medical school on Kos. The earliest known Greek physician was Asclepius, um, sorry for my pronunciation, and he practiced around 1200 BC. And on his death, uh, he became known as the god of healing in Greek mythology because it was seen that he'd had such a huge influence on um, medicine and healing. So, next in our journey, we're going to come across Hippocrates. He became known as the father of medicine. He was born in Greece around 460 BC and he described the effects of around 300 plants. In his writings, he wrote that the way to health is to have an aromatic bath and a scented massage every day. He prescribed lots of perfumed fumigations and fermentations. Um, famously, he made the Megaleon um, preparation, which was made from myrrh and cinnamon and cassia um, after creating Megaleus. Um, it was used both as a perfume and as a remedy for skin inflammation and to, to deal with battle wounds. He took the view that surgery was the last resort and he began to view the body as a whole and it's thought that he created holism. I've put you a link to a little YouTube video about Hippocrates because even doctors that qualify today in England have to take the Hippocratic Oath as part of their medicine training. So he's quite interesting. Um, Theophrastus is the next one. He was a philosopher and a student of Aristotle. He investigated plants and how the scents affected the emotions. And he wrote several books about this. One called The History of Plants. And this book was used for many centuries as a reference. And he's generally referred to as the founder of botany. Dioscorides is um, the next one that we'll talk about. He was a medical physician who served in Nero's army. And in order to study herbs, he marched his army across a lot of Europe, um, recording what he saw. And he wrote De, De Materia Medica, in which he gave detailed accounts of the healing properties of many herbs. Now, this book was translated into Persian, Hebrew, Arabic, Anglo-Saxon and many other languages and again it was one that is still available today and it is still very much used as a reference guide uh, for herbal medicine. 
The last Greek to note before we move on is Claudius Galen. Now he studied medicine from the age of 17 um, and his first job was to treat the wounds of Roman gladiators. Now it's said that no one under his care ever lost their life um, and as a result of this he became known widely and became personal physician to the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius um, and th by being a personal physician to the Emperor it gave him an opportunity to study and deepen his knowledge and further his knowledge and a century after his death the Roman Empire began its decline so we're now going to move a little way further and we're going to visit the biblical times when the Jewish people began to ex the exodus uh, Europe to Israel around 1240 BC they took with them many of the precious gums and oils and knowledge of their use and on their journey according to the book of Exodus the Lord transmitted Moses the formula for special anointing oil which included myrrh and cinnamon, calamus, cassia and olive oil. This holy oil was used to consecrate Aaron and his sons into priesthood and frankincense and myrrhs are treasures from the east who were offered to the baby Jesus at his birth. The merchants exported scented oils and gums to the Arabian Peninsula and gradually this spread throughout the Mediterranean region. The Song of Solomon from the Old Testament has many references to aromatic substances and I've put you a link so that you can go and have a look at the Song of Solomon. Now this one's quite personal to me because part of the Song of Solomon was used as a reading at my wedding ceremony um, and it was many years before I became an aromatherapist but perhaps my path was already made because it, it was something that had quite an impression on me. Um, Another wonderful book to read, although it is fictional, uh, but it's based on biblical texts and talks a lot about how women used um, aromatic medicine, is The Red Tent by Anita Diamant. Um, again, it's widely available, but it is quite a nice one to read uh, because it does. it's based on a biblical story. So uh, we'll move a little further and we'll go to Roman times and they were very lavish with their perfumes and they used um, three kinds of perfumes Lady Smarter um, which were perfumes Solid Unguents which were Stymarter Scented Oils and Diapasmata which were powdered perfumes they would fragrance the hair, the bodies, the clothes, the beds um, lots of scented oils were used after bathing as well. Lavendulus stichus, uh, which is the French lavender, inhabited the, the island of Hyres, um, which the Romans called um, stuchid after the plant. This, um, they used the plant to perfume their baths. Um, and this was probably the foundation of the plant's Latin names from the Latin lavar or lave in French, which means to wash. Um, 
After the fall of the Roman Empire, many of the Roman physicians fled to Constantinople and they took with them the books of Galen, Hippocrates, Dioscorides, um, with them. So this meant that at least the knowledge was kept. Um, and these um, books were then translated into things like Persian and Arabic and they were spread through um, the world. And this, um, at the end of the Byzantine Empire, the knowledge passed into the Arab world. Here in Europe, we began the so-called Dark Ages. But we'll talk a little bit about Persia before we, uh, we enter the Dark Ages. So, in Persia, the next chapter begins. Al-Razi, who was one of the finest physicians in Persia, um, had a large influence on medicine and with his 237 books and uh, articles, he had a deep knowledge of uh, medicine. There was also Ibsenna, who was also known as Avicenna. He was a physician and scholar who wrote books about the properties of plants, but he was also credited with the addition of the cooling coil onto the distillation um, vessel for aromatic substances, so um, the waters which are hydrosols, hydrolats and the essential oils. And in the 10th century, um, the first preparation of rose water was by Avicenna. It's quite interesting to note that in 1975, Dr. Paolo Rovesta um, led an archaeological expedition to Pakistan um, to look at the ancient Indus Valley and the civilization there. And they came across a perfectly preserved distillation apparatus made from terracotta. And there was a presence of perfume containers. Um, and they think they're around from around 3000 BC and this you know looks that the Arabs uh, improve the process and recently um, I took part in a teleconference by Robert Tisserand and he was talking about extraction of essential oils and he was saying that he'd visited somewhere I think in Iran that still uses terracotta stills and he said the quality of the oil that came out was very good even though it looked that it wasn't going to be uh, it was actually very good quality oil and very um, good distillation method um, using the terracotta still so we're now on our way to the dark ages into the anglo-saxon era the oldest surviving english botanical medicine text is the leech book of bald um, and it was thought to be produced in between 900 and 950 by a scribe called Sild, uh, under the direction of Bald. Um, now he was a friend of Alfred the Great, the king at the time, and in the text are described 500 plants, along with a lot of ancient lore and magic and shamanism, and how they use the plants in things like amulets and baths and preparations. Um, we then travel to the Crusades, and things like Rosa Damascena, Rosa Centifolia, were cultivated in Bulgaria, Persia and India. And 
Rosa Damasina was actually a native to the Orient, um, but was introduced into Europe by the Crusades. The method of um, preserving the rose was to steep the oils in oil and then possibly extract it in the form of a pomade. And uh, fatty oils were used um, with the rose petals and in the 13th century lavender was grown in England as well, mainly for rose water. So between the 13th and 14th centuries the Catholic Church governed medicine and they believed that ill health was a punishment from God and in 1347 they saw that a punishment from God arrived in the uh, form of the Black Death or the Pubonic Plague. Over three years from that time it killed 40% of the entire population of Europe. It was spread by fleas of the black rat and in the living conditions at the time in Europe and England it spread very quickly. Frankincense and pine were burnt in the streets as um, disinfectant uh, to clean the air and to help prevent the spread of germs and bacteria and disease and pomanders um, with aromatic gums were worn around the neck to protect people from the plague and the floors were covered with aromatic plants as a protection as well. Things like lavender and rosemary and sage um, were experimented with um, during this time to see what sort of medicinal properties they had. The Black Death disappeared for a while but came back with a vengeance in 1603 and I live in Derbyshire and there's um, a village not too far away from here called Eam which um, the bubonic plague was taken into by a tailor who had his cloth delivered from London and it arrived with, um, it arrived very wet and there were fleas in the cloth and of course when the fleas uh, when they spread the cloth out to dry it, uh, the fleas came off the cloth and because there weren't any black rats for them to live on, they went onto the humans and very quickly uh, people started to die in the village. And in Eam they decided to quarantine themselves um, and they decided that all, if there was a death in a family, that the family had to bur bury the body on their own ground and that all worship at church should be take take place in the open air so that it didn't put people all in one place at one time you could make space um, and they quarantined themselves and there's a wonderful little stone um, on the edge of the village where they put any notes and any money for anything they needed to buy in and then um, somebody from a nearby town possibly Bakewell came and took the note and the money um, and they sort of existed like this till they had no more deaths until they managed to get rid of the um, black death from their village and there's a book called A Year of Wonders by Geraldine Brooks which is an account of this it is fictional but it is based on facts and historical documents and in there they describe the, the medicine women that gather the herbs together and what they do to treat people that have obviously got the plague and how they exist as well sort of how daily life um, exists around being a plague village so we then enter a time 
um, where there was quite a lot of work done with herbal medicine. And John Gerard published the now considered classic herbal text, Herbal um, or General Histoire de Plant, uh, in 1597. Although essential oils by this time had arrived in England, there was no mention in the book. It was all about sort of aromatic medicine and herbs. Um, so uh, we then moved to William Turner, who described the plants in English uh, and instead of the usual more Latin, and he helped popularise herbal medicine. So by the 16th century, lavender water um, and essential oils were known as chemical oils and could be bought in apothecaries. And at this time, there were many publications on herbals, um, and some of them included illustrations of retorts and stills uh, that were used for the extraction of volatile oils, as they saw it, or chemical oils. Um, along came Nicholas Culpepper next. Um, he completed his herbal in 1653, and he also wrote The English Physician, which was published in 1652. In these books, he describes herbs, oils, and he uses them along with references to astrological herbalism. The Culpepper books are still very much available today and still used as a reference, um, again available for Amazon. And then we went through um, Greek Herbal was published in 1526 um, and there were various physicians um, that published books right through um, the 15 and 1600s. So now we're entering more modern times and by the time we get to 1886 Salmon's Dispensary contains numerous aromatic red remedies um, and development into essentials such as cedar, cinnamon, frankincense, juniper, rose, rosemary, lavender um, but newer oils came to the fore as well such as cajaput and chervil, orange flower, valerian and pine. The perfumery and distillation area industry was now sort of around northern Europe, especially in Grasse in France, and it from this sprang up flourishing commercial enterprises. Um, and by the end of the 17th century, it was definitely becoming um, a difference between perfume and aromatics and the apothecary. You could start to see the two. Uh, sort of dividing away. Now enters the term aromatherapy. The house of Gattifosse uh, was one of the several perfume and cosmetic companies that grew up around grass and René Maurice Gattifosse was one of the chemists who researched. He drew a lot of his research from uh, cosmetic uh, and then put it towards therapeutic uses. Um, he realised that many of the things um, that were used as cosmetic were actually very good antiseptics and better than the synthetic ones that were being used at the time. When he burnt his hand in one of his experiments, he put it into a vat of liquid that was the first closest to him, um, which turned out to be lavender. And from doing this he noticed that the burns healed very quickly and there was very little scarring 
So he used his experience to research further into the effects of lavender on the skin. And as we know, it's great for healing. It helps prevent scarring. And he wrote his first book, Aromatherapy, and he published lots of articles and he published lots of scientific papers. The Second World War, however, intervened um, and he published or researched little for around 15 years around the Second World War. I've put you a little link to a Gattafosse um, website, which is quite a nice one. It is in French, unfortunately, um, and it doesn't appear to want to translate it. But there's some nice, nice images and things as well. So the next aromatherapist to note um, was Jacques, Dr. Jean Valnay, and he followed the work of Gattafosse, and he was a surgeon in the French army. He used essential oils. Uh, for treating battle wounds in the French Indochina War and he later used essential oils with mentally disturbed patients in psychiatric hospitals. His own book, Aromatherapy, uh, which is available as in English translation, The Practice of Aromatherapy, was published in 1964 and is still very much one of the texts that we look at and refer to today. It's one of the classic aromatherapy texts. Margaret Maury uh, was also a contemporary with Valnay. She came from a background of being a biochemist um, and didn't feel at all confident about prescribing the use of intent essences and essential oils internally. So she looked at external methods of application and through this um, she used them both therapeutically and for cosmetics and she came up with a therapy based on massage and she um, worked extensively with this um, and in 1961 she published uh, Le Capital Jeunesse um, which is the secret of life and youth the English translation and she towards the end of her life uh, moved to England and she carried on her work in London and it is still very much carried on today by assistants that trained with her. The first Englishman to write a book about aromatherapy was Robert Tisserand, and he published The Art of Aromatherapy in 1977. His book was strongly influenced by the work of Valnay and Gattafosse, um, and he, in cooperation with Tony Balex, produced The Essential of Safety, which has been one of the most influential aromatherapy books of our time and hopefully next year there will be an update to this book published um, he did say on one of his seminars that he had sent the proofs to the printer so we'll wait and see uh, he's still very much active in the world of aromatherapy both writing and presenting seminars all over the world so we're now really in modern times. Uh, modern aromatherapy was born at the turn of the century really from the works of Gattafosse and it's in, attracted many studies, many research papers have been written about it and there are many many practicing therapists. Lots and lots of um, research papers about aromatherapy and lots of research into aromatherapy is done in many many different countries and we're making great advances and we're moving forward in great leaps and bounds at times so there's many 
contemporary aromatherapists and these, you know, the, the well-known names include Valerie Werwood, Salvatore Bittaglia, Kirchner-Albelt, um, Shirley and then Price, Patricia Davis, Gabriel Moje, Jean Rose, Maggie Tisserand, Rhiannon Harris-Lewis. Um, there's many, many more. There's lots and lots of books out there. And all I can say is go and look at the books, research on the internet and just enjoy your journey this is now your journey from here on in and your study begins we've covered the history so we're up to date and we're ready to make a start so there are some websites listed that you may find useful uh, if you want to research further I would say go back and look at the little videos that I've put in and answer the questions for the history of aromatherapy section and have fun speak to you soon bye